Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Espensky. Today we are discussing chapter 13 and we will be covering this chapter in three parts over separate podcasts. This is part two. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So here's where we left off. So the thing is, is it's almost like we're so distracted by this, and he calls it the, you know, the, the two-dimensional type of thinking, that we're, that's stopping us from asking what else is there and and why are we here beyond that? He said the infinitely greater potentiality of the phenomena of life and of consciousness compared with physical phenomena assures us of the exact opposite. And we have a full right to declare that energetics is just as subjective a theory as any doctrine of dogmatic theology. That's probably going to offend a few. Well, I said this, <laughs> this chapter would, uh, and I know that it will. It comes back to your point. Where, where has what religion in this world has ever uh, actively encouraged questioning of their dogma? None. And by the way, while we're saying religion, I will remind people: science is the new religion. It is dogmatic. People unquestioningly, if 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 a, an authority like a government or a a, a quasi-governmental organisation like the World Health Organisation or the United Nations or, or, or any of these things, if they quote a, a scientist tells us or our scientists tell us, nobody questions it. Very few. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Very few. And those that do will be howled down by the masses that have asked no questions as though the masses have some authority in this, when the only authority they have is somebody that they don't know who said something that they haven't questioned. <laughs> yeah, great authority for howling down somebody that's had the the brains and the wherewithal and the intelligence to actually just say, hang on, let's have a look and see if this is true, if it's provable, what they're saying. That's what's happened. Science is the religion. When we say religion, everybody's minds have been programmed to think of whatever the religion that they've been grew up, grown up in. I mean, for us, we've grown up in um, Christian societies, but it's the same for um, people who follow Islam. It's the same for people who follow Judaism, Buddhists, and everybody else. But it's probably, probably claimed that they question everything, but I'm going to tell you that my experience is that they don't. There isn't a dogma, there isn't a holy book for them, but there is the Dharmapada, and, and we can't even claim to know that the sayings of the Buddha in the Dharmapada were actually said by anybody called Gautama Buddha, but, you know, the Buddha. But but people will use that as, as something to latch onto. Certainly Western people who've, who've come to Buddhism, they need to have a dogma, and they, they will find one. In my experience in this world, uh, they do find one, and they will latch onto it. So, yeah, I'm not going to give them a pass on this. Everybody seems to want to do it, and they don't question they become uncritical. They really do. And science, science is a religion in exactly that way now. The high priests of science are the scientists. And if you bring out a scientist, no matter what the discipline, whatever he says on any subject, you're expected to just, you've been hypnotized and brainwashed into thinking that this is whatever he's pronounced or she's pronounced is something that you've got to listen to and accept because this is a scientist saying it. This is the new religion, and we sh we should make sure that um, people understand that when we say religion, when we're talking here, we're talking about science. And and I was just going to say, with regards to that, we've already discussed before about the academic world, the the world of uh, scientific papers and coming up with scientific discoveries. Even in that academic space, if you come out against the uh, accepted theories accepted with something brand new that actually challenges the careers of the, the ones that are already gone before you you yeah. yeah good luck with that good luck well your peer review your peer review system will not allow you you know you'll you'll rarely get published in in the in the publications that you need to be published in it's rare it'll be rare so even 
Yeah, even within the scientific base, it, it's self-support. So let's have a look at what he says. Consciousness is not bound to the physical world and is, in fact, part of the world of the hidden. So now we're looking at not uh, phenomena and noumena being separate things. He's just saying it's the one thing manifesting as visible or not visible. So, it, 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 you know, it doesn't mean just because it's invisible that it doesn't exist. So I quote, he says, the simple fact as shown above of the enormous liberating, unbinding force of the phenomena of consciousness is sufficient to establish quite really and firmly the problem of the world of the hidden. And the world of the hidden, John? I was just going to say, because in my book, we don't use consciousness, for which I am truly grateful. He uses psychic phenomenon, because by that he also means thoughts, ideas. And I think the reason he's changed that is because later on in this chapter, he is talking about consciousness being thoughts, desire. That's what he, he defines. Yeah, I as. have got, I have got that. I have got that when he talk, when he does make that definition of consciousness, which is why I like um, when he uses psychic um, phenomena. Do you think the definition of consciousness has changed over time? Then, because he's he's in, he's he's used that, but when he's is talking about it, he is defining it as those things that you're saying are psychic. I actually think that nowadays it's become so loose as to be indefinable and 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 almost a useless term, which is why I, 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 I'd rather have I'd rather have um, I'd rather have him using words like uh, psychic phenomena or the numinous, as Carl Carl Jung called called it the numinous. Consciousness we seem to attach to individuality as well, like. I have a consciousness that's separate from your consciousness, um, whereas Carl Jung's numinous seems to be collective. The idea that we are projections of the one collective consciousness. Yeah. We we are we are just like projections of that. The idea that we're separate from it and separate from each other is therefore, in, in that sense, uh, almost ridiculous. It, you know, assuming that you accept the idea of a collective. One yeah, thing, absolutely. consciousness. So you know, when we're using consciousness now, um, we we tend to be taught, and certainly here, where he, where in my book he's used psychic phenomena, he's talking about this from an individual point of view. Now, our thoughts within our projection of con uh, of consciousness are going to be separate things. Like uh, your thoughts belong to the projection of consciousness that is you. Mine are me. In the same way that we, we can say that in on the earth, on the surface of the earth, there are mountains. They're still part of the earth, but they they are not part of the plains. You know, we, we, we yes. can define them as a separate thing, even though they are part of the one thing. And that's why, you know, I, I really like him using psychic um, phenomena by which we, we can then, we don't have to go too far. We don't have to go out of what he's saying we can we can understand that he's talking about things like thoughts ideas desires feelings on an individual level without 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 us then going all airy fairy and then missing the point of what he writes after it you know because you can then go you can start going off into flights of fantasy in your own mind and i really love the fact that in the second edition which mine is he's changed it there that's that's all i'm saying yeah and he's done that for a lot of things with with that mm. word I'm, I'm with you there. The word consciousness, when I see it bandied around to me, kind of extrapolates to being an awareness, but, you know, it doesn't mean what we're talking about here. Psychic phenomena is what we're talking, when he's talking about mm. consciousness here, is what he yeah. really is meaning. Yeah, something intangible, but we know that it exists. Yeah. Yeah, exactly so. Exactly so. So he starts explaining the world of the hidden by the visible. The higher and he's through explaining the lower. Yes, the high through the lower, the known through the unknown. So I'll just I'll read that that portion. And the world of the hidden cannot be the world of unconscious mechanical motion, of unconscious development of electromagnetic forces. The positivistic theory admits to the possibility of explaining the higher through the lower, the invisible through the visible. But it has been shown at the very beginning that this is the explanation of one unknown by another unknown. This is still less justification for explaining the known through the unknown. Yet the lower matter and motion. I think you should stop there. Hang on, stop, stop there. Let's invest, let's investigate it to there because it's a long passage that you're about to read, and I think you know it can be broken down into nice little chunks here. 
you know, this this idea that the positivistic theory admits the possibility of explaining the higher through the lower, the invisible through the visible. In other words, he's what he's saying there is that posit positivistic theory does allow the idea that you can actually investigate the cause through the effect. In other words, the phenomenon can be your path to investigating the cause of that phenomenon. But he says that we can't, act, we can't actually know the phenomenon. So it's investigating one unknown by means of another unknown. That's what he's saying there. Much like examining the uh, movie screen yep, and saying it. you understand how the movie was made. But then he felt, he, he, you know, the last bit uh, before we move on to the next section, there is still less justification for explaining the known through the unknown. Um, the unknown, by definition, can't be known, so how can we use it to explain the known? Well, I think that's his very point. He's kind of saying that if we look at everything and explain it from the visible and try and explain the invisible, well, the visible is the unknown. So we cannot explain the invisible by examining the visible. We can only explain the visible. I think that's what he's saying, that, that positivistic... Yeah, well, he does. That, that's, the that's the next sentence, isn't it? Yet that lower... You know, by which he means matter and motion, as he says that, through which the positivists, through which the positivists strive to explain the higher life and thought, is itself unknown. Consequently, it's impossible to explain and define anything else in terms of it. While the higher, i.e., the thought, this is our sole known. Now we're getting on to some cart of some sort of Cartesian um, idea here, Rene Descartes. The, René Descartes used some kind of reductio ad absurdum, you know, the reduction of using questions to get to something that would, on the face of it, seem absurd. In other words, he ended up, through his whole book, you know, um, the you know, discourse on the method and so on, the, and the meditation, he ended up with that famous phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. In other words, he was saying that the only thing that I can know for certain is that I, I have thoughts. And that is exactly what Uspensky is saying here. The only thing that we can know is that we think, that we have thoughts. Everything else we can't prove. And this is where I think Uspensky moves from his very beginning where he said we have two knowns and knocks one out of the park and says, actually, we've only got one known and that is our consciousness of ourselves that's that that's our thought. yeah, thoughts yeah you can you, you, you can forget the phrase you literally knock it down to to what um descartes did thoughts are the only thing you can know is thoughts if we see this is where you get a problem if we use the word consciousness and we try to define it oh it's when i have a meditation and i'll go out there into the unknown and time doesn't exist uh, you could say how the hell do you know that you've done that you've had an experience that could literally just have been a thought yeah. Prove it. Prove that you had this experience. The only thing you can know until we go further on, until we you know, we go somewhere else, the only thing you can know at this point from our investigation is that, that we have thoughts, that, that we have a thought or thoughts. I think it's great here. And, 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 you know, and Descartes wasn't a stupid person. By the way, he was also another mathematician, so maybe, maybe Spensky would be using <laughs> Cartesian logic here. But, um, you know, but Descartes uh, wasn't stupid. He, he wasn't going, no, he's wrong with this. I've only got a thought. Everything else. He, you know, it's not childish. This. This is a great conclusion from a from a, a wonderfully reasoned piece of logic. Now, philosophy departments and professional academics within philosophy departments make their living by ripping everything that the that the, the great philosophers have done apart and so on. And you can see lots of deconstructs. I think you find that if we could go back and speak to Descartes, he'd be saying, "Why are you wasting your time on on analysing this for?" All it's trying to do is make you think and, and to take this to a different area and, and to a new area and go beyond what I've just uh, just done. Um, but people have to make a living, don't they? And they, the only way that you can do it in philosophy is by finding cracks in the foundations of the giants that have gone before. And the thing is here, what you know, exactly what you're saying as well is that uh, if thought is our only known, and thought is the higher that that 
produces the lower, i.e. is the invisible that produces the visible, then we are getting closer to being able to change the visible because we are now looking at thought, something we have, something we're aware of, or being, being something that potentially is going to change what we experience. And that is why I think controlling the masses is controlling the way they think. Yeah, it is, and that's what they do, and it's easy. Uh, let's, talk, let's talk about this idea of, of thought being able to create, to manifest phenomenon. If you want to see what's meant by that, allow me to refer you to an episode. I think it's around about episode six or seven of season one, Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> that great sage. Well, let me put it this way. You won't find um, thought manifesting phenomena explained as readily as that and, and as accessibly as that. Because the shame of it is, of course, that people say, oh, the, the masses, the, 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 the you know, hypnotized, brainwashed masses, we are going to look at that and say, oh, it's just a work of fiction, it's only science fiction. But, you know, these great philosophers over the ages that have said, this is how it works. First, there has to be a thought before anything manifests. Now, we can do it in a, a you can follow a, me a mechanical story. I have the thought of making a wheel because that would work. Where the thought came from is neither here nor there. And then I start experimenting with materials and then I create this phenomena that we call a wheel. You can see it like that, but all the philosophers and all the ancients and people that, that are making uh, millions out of the law of attraction, they're trying to suggest the same thing. But see it happen, thought directly producing a phenomena as if by magic in front of you. And that episode, it happens. It happens with hyper-travel, travel that actually um, passes through time. And there's an alien that can actually control it. So there's a guy that controls this alien for whatever reason, and it is explained in, in the show. That's, that's just a storyline. But the idea is... This guy tells them that he can make starships travel faster than anything. He's put onto Picard's Enterprise, and he brings with him his assistant, this alien. But it's the alien's thoughts of wanting to go at this speed that make the speed happen. And then there's an adventure, and eventually the alien sort of dies or disappears in his efforts to think them back to the present time. But it's exactly that. It's a, it's a great explanation of what these philosophers are trying to get you to understand, that the cause of things are ideas and thoughts, not the phenomena in themselves. The phen phenomena come from thoughts. Phenomena can stimulate other thoughts, but they can't create thoughts. Thoughts can create phenomena. They can be the, 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 the bedspring of phenomena coming into being. But it can't be the other way around. They, well, I suppose if you, if you use them as a stimulus, but stimulating what? Anyway, moving on, now that I've had my Star Trek uh, bit put in. I like your Star Trek. I think that, and, and look, a lot of, you can look at movies like The Matrix, uh, look at the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, a lot of these movies are set in, you know, that there, there are concepts out there that they're, they're explaining as a fiction, but doesn't mean they're not a fiction. Um, well, he's put here, if thought can evoke or unbind physical energy, and unbind is in italics in my, my vision, and motion can never create or unbind thought, you know, as, as you use this example, out of a revolving wheel, no thought ever arose, you know, so of course we'll strive to define not the higher in terms of the lower, but lower in terms of the higher. I think it's yeah. a great way of, of putting it, you know, because we know that, um, Thoughts can unbind physical energy. I just want to make sure that we understand what that means. That you can have an idea that you then bring to action and you, you can then transform materials. In other words, I can, I can have an idea that I want to build a log cabin and that allows me to uh, unbind the energy of a tree by cutting it down and shaping it into logs, which I then fashion into a log cabin. I have unbound the tree energy and transformed it into something else. That's what he means by unbinding in this sense. So, you know, but you can't do it the other way around. I can't take a, la a, a log cabin, you know, and have that create the idea of um, a seed in the ground. If I didn't already know that the log cabin was made out of wood and wood comes from trees, 
The sight of a log cabin would not induce in me the idea of a tree. It doesn't work in reverse. And even more so, if if the log, log cabin is built so that you could live in it, for example, uh, the log cabin on its own is just a log cabin, but it doesn't explain yeah. the life of you living in that log cabin, the no. uh, inspiration you had to build it and how you uh, even joined the logs to Absolutely. make the cabin. Much, much, much less does it. Much less does it get us back to the tree. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the crafty wise savage. If you give the crafty wise savage, <laughs> I love that phrase. If you give him a, a book, <laughs> as as we've we've spoken about earlier, it can go through all of these motions of seeing it as a positivistic thing. You know, it's a phenomenon. It sees the pages. How how often would the crafty wise savage um, be stimulated to think about the tree that had to be chopped down to make the paper? Crafty Wide Savage wouldn't know that that paper is made of wood. There is nothing about a, a page in a book that looks or feels or in any way simulates wood. So exactly wouldn't be right. stimulated into thinking of a tree. That's the sort of thing that we're talking about here. It does not work in reverse. But somebody did have the idea of of chopping down a tree, um, making it into shreds, pulping it, and then pressing it and drying it and having something you could write on. Somebody had that idea and then and then turned it into a phenomenon, but it didn't work the other way. But it cannot work the other. It cannot work the other way around. If you do no, not know cannot. that paper is made out of uh, out of wood, uh, you will never start thinking. It will never provoke the thought of the, of the tree. But even thinking, taking that further, if you looked at a tree, you wouldn't think paper came from a tree unless you actually knew that was the case. So the first person to make paper. What made them think, gee, I'll make paper out of that tree? I mean, it has no bearing whatsoever to a sheet of paper. It's possibly an accident. I mean, it's possible that wood, wood shavings you know, got wet and then they dried out and then somebody said, oh, hang on, that's, that's more solid than I thought it was. The, the, the very act of, of like getting wet and drying out. Now, I wonder if this, you know, and then they end up like experimenting and we end up with paper. Who knows? I have absolutely no idea. But that is that is a possible projection. I think it's it's virtually unthinkable that if you don't know, uh, you know, so those two things do go together. And it's, I think it's virtually unthinkable that if you don't know that paper is made from wood, that if you picked up a book for the first, there will be people in the Western world, you know, that, even now that don't know that paper's made from wood. I, I <laughs> bet your life on that. I really bet your yeah. life on that. You know, there's, well, of course, I bet your life. I'll bet my life on it. <laughs> you know, I bet my <laughs> life on it. There'll be people that don't know. So a book, they pick up a book. They probably wonder why the person at the print is going, I just killed another tree. They're probably thinking, what the? <laughs> what that? Yeah. When they've printed out something like an inch thick. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, honest, it, it is, it, it's a, you know, it is. Spensky makes a great point there. You know that the yeah. that the positivists, for all the fact that positivism is the new religion, you know, or, or the bedrock of the new new scientific religion, it is it is positing something that we can we can pretty much demonstrate is fake. You know that you don't get the idea from the phenomenon, but you you can find that the idea is the the causal points of the phenomena coming into being in certain instances at any rate. And this is, uh, this is what he says about that. He says that science basically, as you said, explains the world in terms of one visible describing another and does not consider the causes in the invisible world, i.e. the thoughts. Yeah. Can I read, can I read this, this little paragraph? This paragraph is great. Starting from a false assumption concerning the mechanicality of the noumenal side of nature, Positive science, upon which the view of the world of the intelligent majority of contemporary humanity is founded, makes still another mistake in regard to cause and effect, or the law of functions. That is, it mistakes what is cause and what is effect. And I think that's, that's the truth. And that's, that's the lie that keeps people locked in the economic man plane of existence. And worshipping the new religion. So let's explore that a little more. The cause and the effect, not understanding the difference between the cause and the effect. That's basically what that paragraph is saying, isn't well, it? Well, it's, it's saying that they get them the wrong way around. It's saying yeah. that they mix up cause for effect and effect for cause. So if we look at the cinematograph, they're mixing up the images on the screen as the cause and the effect. 
So in essence, they're saying that the whole thing is being caused on the screen and the effect is on the screen. And that's what I think he's also saying in this chapter, that they only look at things happening well, on the screen. Well, he's saying the whole plane. thing is... Yeah, and we, and, you know, and we know that the, the phenomenal side of, of existence is an illusion as well. We know that we can't prove its existence. Yeah. But that's, that's the whole point of, of the Cartesian um, uh, method of investigation. This reductio ad absurdum. And so with science only explaining things in terms of the visible, the cause is in the visible, the effect is in the visible, and nothing to do with the invisible, uh, it's it's limiting itself to, as, as you were saying, it's it's limiting itself to thinking that everything is happening in, in the visible. Coming, coming back to your analogy, you know, and, and it's also his analogy of the, the image on the cinema screen, it's like the scientists are sitting in the cinema watching that film being played out on the screen and then pointing to things that happen in the story and saying, there is your proof, ladies and gentlemen. That's why it happens. Look at that. Because that's what they're doing. Yeah. They're investigating. Oh, look at that. That that car crashed into that car because the guy didn't step on the brakes. But they're watching a movie. So you're, you're, just, you're just using one illusion to explain another illusion. What, he, what, the, what, the, what the scientist doesn't, isn't aware of and doesn't even consider at that point is that the car never crashed. That's done by CGI. It's a special effect. Of, of the, the numinous on the, you know, that, that projects onto the screen, <laughs> the screen is a special effect and, and it is all CGI'd and no cars crashed whatsoever. Take it even further. Supposing that the film on the screen was actually a cartoon. And the scientist was pointing at the, <laughs> the things that were happening in the cartoon and, and saying, look, ladies and gentlemen, behold, I have found out what causes this to happen. And, and there's the cause and there's the effect. Thus, you have your proof. It, this, is what we're, this is what we're doing. And this is what the science of religion, uh, the religion of science is doing right now. And that's what he's saying. I'm actually going to say that we live in this illusion and we have to... We have to make sense of this illusion. We are having the experience in the illusion. So science, when it explains the illusion in those terms, does allow us to have the, the experience that we want to have. Let's, let's be in no doubt about that. But what science refuses to do is to accept the investigation of anything that says there's something beyond what they are telling you. They really will not. And that's the problem. Yeah, I'm not. And that's you know, so, yes, point. For me to have my 3D existence on, and, and my experience on this planet, yes, I drive a, a fabulous sports car, and I, you know, and and I, I have these things that we were, we were all talking about, and I like, and I, and and I do enjoy them, and that, and I, and I understand this has all come about. The materialistic aspect of it has come about because science, in the form of, uh, you know, has stimulated production that stimulated me to consume. And I enjoy, I enjoy that whole process, the circular process that we go through. And I do. Where I have my issue with science and the, and, and the use of science as the new religion is where science will not look at things like the numinous and, and how they, how then it's the science, science is projected to the mass of humanity as the only thing that really is real is positivism and that any thoughts of anything beyond that are a bit woo-woo, I think is the new phrase. I hate that phrase, yes. but I think woo-woo. And, and I believe that, you know, that this is what's happened. Investigations like this, which, by the way, were gaining strength in the late 19th century and the early 20th, certainly, um, have died off. Please don't anybody try to tell me that all of this new age, new age malarkey and everybody doing yoga it is anything of an investigation in this sense. It really is not. That's another trap that people have been put into. And we won't talk about that. It's got nothing to do with Dispensky, but it is. You know, you, you, you want to, you want to walk away from, from our great religion that's enslaved you. Well, here, let's give you another one to believe in. We'll, we'll, we'll give you, we'll give you a book telling you how to do breathing exercises and meditation. Go off and read our book. Read our Bible. Cause, you know, anyway, moving, moving on, moving on. But, you know, that, that, that is the thing. It's, if, well, let me, let me read what he says about science and the visible world. 
In other words, he sees in causal and functional inter interdependence merely phenomena proceeding upon the surface and studies the visible world or the phenomena of the visible world, not admitting that causes can enter into this world which are not contained in it or that the phenomena of this world can possess functions extending beyond it. And that is where you know we look at things like thought setting the ball rolling, so to speak, not even being considered. Yep, and that's... And that's exactly what we've just been saying. You know, this this is it puts it in a nutshell. Mm, it's brilliant. I think what he's yeah, I love this chapter. Okay, yeah. so then he goes on to say the fact that we have phenomena of life and of consciousness in the world refutes that the visible phenomena are caused by other visible phenomena. Well, in, yeah, in mine he doesn't say he doesn't say consciousness. He says life and thought, which I think is so much better. Yeah. Would well, you want to read your your paragraph? Oh look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't read yours. I'm just, I'm just saying that I do, I don't like this use of consciousness indiscriminately and and inconsistently because in in that early edition, I can see why he's changed it. Um, yeah, exactly. So, and he's changed it consistently by the look of it. Yeah, he has pretty much. Yeah, which is good. So when he, so that when he does use the word consciousness, it has a fixed focus for us. That's why. Uh, that's why I love it. But he does, he does say, he says thought. He says, no thought. He says, but this could be true only in cases, only in case there were no phenomena of life and of thought in the world. Or if the phenomena of life and thought were really derivatives from physical phenomena and did not possess infinitely greater latent force than they. I like the the fact that he's Me put thought too. in instead of the word consciousness. It really it, makes it make sense. It, yeah, it's it's yeah. to me it, it's brighter, it's clearer what what it what is being yeah. said. I find consciousness is a bit woolly in the in, in, in the moments, you know. And I and I think that's what that's the point we made all the way up to this. You know, there was no real definition of consciousness. It, the word was bandied around. I might have had my interpretation you've had yours the whole world probably has you know some other interpretation as well it but thought we do all know what thought means we know what desire means we know all those words what they have a very definitive meaning and yep. i like that so same, same here so i can i just mention though that bit where he's just said um the in the the um thought has infinitely greater latent force than physical phenomena yeah, now let's talk about that. Good example. You build a castle. You've, you've just taken over a country, you know, some countryside, and you've built a castle, medieval castle. Right, I own it. I'm protected in here. You can't get me. My, my troops will sally forth and put down any insurrection, and everybody in this area does as I say. I come along, and I think, I want that land, but I'm going to have to take that castle. At the moment, I don't have a phenomenal means of doing it. I cannot breach that wall. But if I think, I'm going to think about how I'm going to do this. And Eureka, I come up with an engine that I can make that has greater power than the wall to resist it. In other words, I make something like a trebuchet and I, I fire rocks at the wall often enough to I weaken it and break it. And then my army goes in and rapes and murders and, and I own the land. Now, remember, at the moment, there is a castle and there is me. My thought about how I'm going to breach that castle wall ended up being stronger than the castle wall. Yeah. Because my thought led me to do something about that castle wall that would breach it. That's what, that's what he means by, that's an example of what he means by the thought having far greater latent power. And of course, it's latent, hang on, it's latent power simply because if I have the thought and do nothing about it, then it's just a thought. It's latent power. It only becomes phenomenal power when, yeah, it, but it only becomes a phenomenal power when I actually do something about the thought and turn it into a phenomena, i.e. the siege engine that's going to break the wall. That's, that's okay. That's all I wanted to say. Sorry. You, you move us on. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm pushing that, that analogy a little further and saying, what created the thought? And the, to me, what in, in that analogy, the desire to get the castle and the land was right. strong enough 
to make you find a thought, catch a thought somewhere, because I mean, you, you... Well, to, to to stimulate that thought, to stimulate it. You know, we're we're not going into where what gets stimulated and where that comes from at the moment, but it it is the desire, the emotion is the stimulation. Now, as a hypnotist and a hypnotherapist, I'm going to tell you something right here. That is how therapy works. If I did something, if I did an experiment, you know, like I've done with you. Now, I know that this isn't being, this isn't visual, so people can't do it, but it's the magic fingers. And I first demonstrated hypnosis to you. I got your fingers to stick together. And I don't know if you remember how one of the, one of the techniques I used was when I'd got your fingers together and I, I said, your eyes will close when your fingers come together. They came together, your eyes closed. And I said to you, think of the people you love the most in all the world. Feel that love, the love you have for them, and the love you have for them. Really feel it, feel it in your body, and you know, feel that emotion. See their faces, see them smiling. You know, what I was doing was stimulating an emotion, because once we stimulate emotions, emotions allow suggestions to become real. You get that, right? And that's what I did. And then when I, and then once I'd done that, I said, and now you find the more you feel that love. The stronger your fingers stick together. That's right. The more you feel that love, the stronger those fingers stick together. They're stuck together, glued together, bolted together. You can try to pull them apart and find that you cannot. And then I start using techniques and, and stuff. And you can't part your fingers. You know, it's a simple hypnotic exercise to demonstrate what the power of your own mind. Because bear in mind, I've only made suggestions then. It's your own mind and your own imagination that's created the phenomena of the stuck fingers. Yeah. So on, so on a small scale, magic fingers. On a large scale, creating a rocket that takes us to the moon. But it's the same thing. It's a thought that becomes a phenomena. And this is where Aspensky's talking. He's saying, well, come on. You're just, you're just a scientist saying, oh, well, um, you know, someone made a mechanical machine to breach the to breach the castle, and that's how they got in. That's how it all worked. And they pulled that as a sort of something out, separate from the fact that the thought and the desire and all those things were were attached to it. And and that sort of takes me a little bit further. Uh, well, maybe I, I'm jumping over a little part, but Spensky in this chapter starts talking about chains of... of cause and effect. A cause and effect, and them all being... Like, well, we will get a little bit further to Mabel Collins with her uh, horse hair or her uh, rope yeah. analogy. But it's, yeah. no, let's let's continue. Let's weave our way there. So uh, reading on from where you just read, um, you talked about, but this could only be true in case there were no phenomena of life and of thought in the world, or if the phenomena of life and of thought were really derivatives from physical phenomena and did not possess infinitely greater latent force than they, then only would we have the right to consider the chains of phenomena in their physical or visible sequence alone, as positivistic science does. Um, so he's talking about the chains of phenomena, and this is where, he's, where he starts introducing this concept that it's not a single event. It's it's belonging to a chain that goes from the visible into the invisible, and from the invisible into the visible. Like it's 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 something that is. So now we've got visible to invisible, and then coming back out again as one particular chain. Mm. I see a tree. I notice the the trunk of the tree and the shape of the branches, and then that stimulates an idea in me because that's the visible. That's the real. That stimulates an idea in me. If I cut that tree down, and I cut a few of them down, I can, I can actually pile those, the resulting logs, let's call them logs, into a shape that forms a building, a, a cabin for me to live in. So I've gone from tree phenomena, stimulating a thought, invisible, that then stimulates me to actually take action with that tree, cut it down and make a cabin. I've gone from visible to invisible to visible in this chain, in this flowing chain. In other words, there is no, there is no cutoff point between the visible, the invisible, and the visible again. It's a, it's one continuous flow of creativity. That's and that's the sort of thing that he's talking about there. 
and that's yeah, that's his point. And he and he um, extends that to life as well. I looked at you know, yeah, keep going. This that. is this is an interesting bit, and I've got an example here. So you you go for that. Okay, so so my next bit is um, life appearing in the physical and then disappearing again into the invisible. Um, regarding uh, matter from this standpoint, we see that just as in life, in the life of one man and in the life of society, there are many streams at times appearing on the surface and spouting up in boisterous torrents and at other times disappearing deep underground, hidden from view, but only waiting for their moment to appear again on the surface. So I think that he's tackling there the concept of life and death and saying there is no such thing. It's it's one chain that, that is passing through as the visible and then the invisible. The course of the visible is the invisible. Okay, so um, a great little example there is the conception of life. There's something very visible about the act of, confe- uh, of conception. <laughs> and the desire that, that uh, prompts yeah. such act. Mm. And there will be several desires at play in many instances in that. In that, if we're talking about life, but um, but there you go. So you have that, and then you have a physical that at that point disappears into the invisible. There is no mechanical process that says new life is created, whatever that is. That happens in the invisible realm. But what comes out? Another human being, very visible. Very phenomenal. And then that that human being will start having thoughts, ideas, and manifesting phenomena from its own ideas. The phenomena of motion, for example, it will learn to crawl across a floor. It'll have the idea, I want to be over there and crawl across there. You know, so, but that causal chain came, you could, you could perhaps want to say that came from the initial desire to have a child and have sex. Because that, because those are the two necessaries. Then after that, but the point of, of life, you know, being created from that act is invisible to us. It's, it's part of the noumena. What, you know, at what point does life exist? And so, and, and that's a debate, but, um, we know that life does happen, but what we don't know is how. Yeah. We don't know, we don't know how. And that the, the many streams that, that are all interacting as well. So once that new person has their own thoughts and desires, I want to crawl. But the parents, their chains are also intertwined with that because I want to teach that child how to to survive for themselves and then shape shape their chain. But then there comes a point where the yeah. child breaks away and says, don't care what you guys think, I'm grown, I'm doing what I want to do. Only to an extent for most people, but yes, I mean, it, it, the potential is, yeah. That can be explained in a million ways. And, and honestly, science fiction, again, I'll come back. I'm not, by the way, I'm not a, one of these like science fiction geeks. I, I, I do enjoy Star Trek. I don't like Star Wars. And, but I, you know, when I was younger, I read some Robert Heinlein and Asimov and stuff, but I'm not really a, a science fiction person, but I will use it because it's a great ex- explanation. We often have in science fiction stories and you know, whether it's TV, movies or things, this paradox of going back in time to change the events of the present. And so, you know, like, and, and then the, you have this, this question about, like, if you go back in time and you kill your grandfather or you stop your grandfather from meeting your grandmother, you, do you cease to exist and all of this? You know, so we have these, these ideas of cause, cause and effect. You know, it does prompt questions, which people don't, you know, probably address too much because they don't think it's going to be possible anyway. Um, nevertheless, while we're talking about cause and effect, at some point, some people had this desire, you know, and they fell in love and they, they, they enjoyed their relationship together and then they wanted to have children and they had children and those children did the same thing. They fell in love. And it's a beautiful story, isn't it? This chain of coming in and coming out and coming in and coming out. Uh, and so, yeah, we can look at that and think, wow, yeah, how marvellous. And then one day, we get to the point where one of these couples has a child, and it's Stalin or Hitler. We'll use Hitler because everybody hates him more than they hate Stalin. I have no idea why, but, I mean, Hitler didn't kill anything like as many people as Stalin did. But, you know, nevertheless, he he's the one that's got the badge. But, yeah, so this chain of cause and effect coming in and out from the known to the unknown, the known to the unknown, you know, we can see the experience of it. I mean, we don't always necessarily have to like the result either. And there's a million and one journeys like that, that if they were slightly different, 
So where, what is the cause? Where does the idea come from? Does the cause know what the effect is going to be way in advance? Or, or is it only... And this is this kind of, to me, links in with this intuition, this gut feeling. Are you actually having a premonition of something that might happen so you'll be given a heads up to do something to change that course of events? Say say you're, you're driving your car and I guess, well, I've had this experience where I think, oh, I won't go the way I normally go. I'm just going to go a different way just for kicks. But it's a, it's a strong gut feel to, that today. Now, look, I'll never know. Maybe I avoided something. Maybe I yeah. was going to do something, but I'll never know. But is that intuition tapping into a thought that then knows what what that chain you're on, that chain of events is, is like because they're all together in the same spot. It's not like we see it in time. And it says, no, jump to a different chain because you will then take a different road. Like you're saying with the, um, if you'd gone back in time and, and stopped your parents' meeting, would you have, would you have happened? I mean, it, it potentially says that, you know, you're just jumping onto different chains. You're just, uh, you're changing, your thoughts are changing, your actions are changing your destiny. Um, well, and I don't really want to use the word destiny per se. I just, I'm just saying change the, the, the path you're on at this point in time. Well, of course. And uh, I mean, we've got, I have had the experience too. And, I, and I've wondered about, you know, well, why, where did that come from to do it different? And I've often thought the same thing as you. Did I get an intuition that stopped me from being part of something that would have been, um, let's say, a negative experience, I mean, a crash or, or whatever the heck? I mean, what, is, what is it that made me uh, change that? And it's possibly this idea that if we are connected to the the Jungian collective unconsciousness, that, yeah, we, we're tapping into something that knows what the result would be on this timeline because it actually yeah. does happen. Well, he's, he's a, a, a very... Uh topical uh, gut feel I had um, about three weeks ago I was in the supermarket and I'm shopping to a budget as I always do so I don't uh, waste and walking past the toilet paper now this is before any of this pandemic thing started and I got this little gut feel voice urge whatever better get some toilet paper and I went I've got some at home. I've got six rolls at home, and uh, this I can get some next week when I'm, you know, more, you know, looking at my budget. I just, I, I brought it down to economic man, basically. I brought it down to yep. my calculator and said I won't do that. And then on the Monday, the big toilet paper bolt happened, where everyone was ta- stripping the shelves of toilet paper, and me down to my six rolls, which probably will last me six months, but well, not really six weeks. But the thing is, I had a gut feel that knew what was going to happen and that I needed to just grab some toilet paper when it was there and plentiful. And I ignored it. I ignored it. I I allowed my unreasonable reasoning to come in over the top of it. Now, the next time, and I learned something from that because the next time I had a, a gut feel to get something, I went and got it, even though it made no sense. No sense, yeah. Well... <laughs> The, the the current crisis doesn't affect me because I have access to things. Yeah, but it's well. I guess what I'm saying is an example of, you know, that you you may be avoiding something that would be beneficial to you as as much as maybe not beneficial to you. It, it, that gut feel is just giving you an idea, a thought. Yeah. Your action on that comes down to you. Yep, but whatever it happens, you've had a thought, a feeling, an idea, an emotion, whatever it was, and you created a phenomena. Your action is the phenomena, your action in the, or, or even not action, if, if you don't take action, yeah. in the case of not buying, whatever, that's a phenomena. Because the phenomena of you not doing something, for example, the phenomena of you saying, no, I won't buy the toilet paper, is that it kept the phenomenon of the toilet paper in that position in this three-dimensional world instead of you taking it off the shelf and taking it home. Exactly. It did did result in a phenomenon that we could look at, we could identify, and we can measure. Yeah, and it was something from the invisible 
manifesting itself in the visible. Yeah, either way, it is, yeah. Yeah, so let's move on to this uh, concept of continuous chains of phenomena because I think this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. This next little section, he talks about thoughts, feelings and desires are accompanied by physiological phenomena and introduced physical phenomena. So our thoughts manifest in the physical. But equally so, or even conversely, physical sensations, example, light, heat, sound, you know, something that touches our senses, can do the same thing. It can manifest, um, it's accompanied by uh, physiological phenomena and introduces a physical phenomena. And so Spensky is, is saying that positivistic science looks at things from the second point of view and that's where it's missing out. It's saying, well, the cause was the sunlight creating heat, uh, making you feel uh, warm on your skin, and that's that's how that happened. Whereas the the other concept is saying, well, maybe I'm feeling cold. That's my thought. I'll find some warm sun to warm my skin, being coming in from the other way. So I'll just I'll very quickly read just a little bit of this. We observe in the world continuous chains of phenomena and we perceive how these chains shift from one order of phenomena to another without a break. We observe how the phenomena of consciousness, and in your book, has that got consciousness or is that... Yes, so do we observe in the world continuous chains of phenomena and we perceive how these chains shift from the order of phenomena to another, from, from one order of phenomena to another without a break. We observe how the phenomena of consciousness, thoughts, feelings, desires, are accompanied by, in other words, he's defined consciousness, what he means by consciousness in this bit, as the yeah. combination of thoughts, feelings, and desires, or those on their own, are accompanied by physiological phenomena, creating them perhaps, and inaugurate a series of purely physical phenomena. And we see how physical phenomena, becoming the object of sensations of sight, hearing, touch, smell, and the like, induce physiological phenomena, and then psychological. In other words, using your example of the sun, which is really good, if the sun comes on your skin and, and, and warms your skin with that lovely warm glow that you get in the sun, that has to happen before you have the thought, mm, or the feeling, oh, that's nice. You don't have the feeling, oh, that, that sun on my skin is fantastic before it actually happens. That's what he True, means there. But, but I'm thinking, could he not also be meaning that uh, your desire to... He, he, he means that, that, that no, in, this, in that particular passage, that's what he means. Now, he does, okay. he does say that it can go the other way because these things are intertwined. Mm. And, and they, we keep going in and out of... This phenomenon of consciousness that he, as he describes, thoughts, ideas, feelings, etc. We we go from from physical phenomena to the hidden phenomena and consciousness, and out again in an unbroken chain. So each one can be a cause of, and an effect of the other. How fantastic is that? Yeah, it's 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 very interesting, isn't it? And I guess what he's saying then is. If we only look at one, if we only look at a physical sensation yeah. being the cause of something. Well, he actually says it. He, he actually says it. But looking at life from that side, we see only physical phenomena. And having assured ourselves that it is the only reality, we may not notice the others at all. Because we won't, because we don't, that, that was one of those hidden little gems in this chapter. That's what, yeah, exactly so. That's where I was heading with this, saying, well, we're kind of, if we're focusing on one direction only, one, one way only, yeah. then we are, we're, we're, we're putting tunnel vision on ourselves. We're, we're not even considering yeah. the question, is there something else? And if somebody else suggests it, we're likely to we're likely to point the thing. Oh, you're so stupid. Oh, you're one of those, are you? And that's what that's what and that's what the majority do. And um, that's exactly what they do when it's pointed out to them that you may you may want to question this this little um, version of reality and and see what it's based on. What are its foundations? Oh, you're just stupid. You are. Scientists have told us this is what there is. 
I'm, you do what you want, I'm going off to watch television again. Yep, and Aspinsky will continue with what he says about that. Herein appears the enormous power of suggestion in current ideas. To the sincere positivist, any metaphysical argument provoking the unreality of matter or energy seems sophistry. It strikes him as a thing unnecessary, disagreeable, hindering a logical train of thought, an assault without aim or meaning on that which, in his opinion, is firmly established, alone immutable, lying at the foundation of everything. He vexedly fans away from himself all idealistic or mystical theories as he would be as he would a buzzing mosquito. And I think that kind of sums up exactly what you just said. It is well another example for anybody that's you know that's studying any kind of uh, philosophy, his you know, historical philosophy. It's always it doesn't only infect you know the the idiots and the non-thinking idiots. Supposedly, you know, people that we consider to be rather clever get caught up in it too. Um, an example from the eighteenth century, I think it's the eighteenth yeah eighteenth century. It would be. Dr. Johnson, the the creator, the, you know, he's he's um, an essayist and a much published essayist and the creator of the modern dictionary. It's he's the first one to do one, you know. It's so Dr. Johnson's considered to be one of these great minds of the age of reason. And in the age of reason, we have the and I can't remember which of the empiricists it was. It was either Locke, Barclay, or I think it was Barclay that he was trying to refute. Barclay had, had, had been, they, they had been posing these questions about what's real and what isn't about the phenomenal world. And I think, I think it was Barclay, but I may be wrong. It might, but it was certainly one of those three, Locke, Barclay, and Hume, that had, that had suggested that, um, we cannot know the reality of any object, any supposedly solid object. And Dr. Johnson, as supposedly thinking he is the wittiest man alive, which I can, I can assure you that he isn't, or wasn't, um, he kicked a rock and said, thus I refute it. You know, he isn't even smart enough to realise that the, the idea that was being suggested is that all phenomena are illusory. So his own foot that has thus supposedly kicked the rock would have been part of the illusion. But, you know, but, you know, these people who think that they're clever, and uh, we see it in the media now, all of the columnists and, you know, the, the literati that are, that, that will also, you know, you, you know, you, you, if you, if you question anything like, you know, the, the need for this lockdown because of coronavirus and the hysteria that's surrounding it, uh, and you, and you point out that the death rate and the spread rate are not commensurate with the amount of fear that's being generated. Then they ta- then they come out and say that you're to use the new new speak phrase a conspiracy theorist. That's virtually like saying you're um, a criminal and 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 insane or something. That that's a, a phrase now that they smugly use because they haven't investigated it themselves either. They've just they've just followed the new religion. They're the spokespeople for the new religion. So these supposedly intelligent people, and the, and worse now in the media because the media does reach the masses and for and is opinion forming. So these spokespeople for the new religion, um, supposedly clever, come out with this in their smug way, uh, in the same way that you just suggested that you know, and, and Ospensky suggests that anybody that investigates the numinous is treated. You know, so some and, and what and what happens? Some people then cease questioning and cease posing the question to others. They, in other words, their own behaviour, thoughts, and feelings are put under stress, and they modify their the way that they live and act in this world based on the howling approbation of the uncritical, stupid, unquestioning, unthinking mob. If we want uh, examples from history again on how, how the hysteria of the mob creates the way that a society thinks, moves and breathes, we only have to read, if you can be bothered, and I, can, and I suggest that you should be, read Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. When the, the other great god that we've been told that we should all have an aspiration for is the idea of representational democracy. Well, in Athens, the cradle of democracy, as we're led to believe, 
They didn't have representational democracy in the way that we do. They didn't vote for MPs or, you know, or representatives. It was one small city-state. You had to turn, a bit like Australia, you had to vote. You were, you really, you had to turn up and vote on the matters of the day. Well, the people that wanted power in that society listened to the mob. It created a series of decisions that ended in the utter destruction of, of the Athens of the classical period, the period that brought us the art and, and, and the, the culture, the, the, you know, the theatre and so on, that we all revere about classical Athens, was destroyed because the mob gained its supremacy. We are living in those times right now. We were living in those times when Espensky wrote this. It was already a done deal. And Espensky describes it really quite well. The hysteria of the, the uncritical mob um, silences those that would investigate. No wonder, no wonder people who were working with the occult science and you know the revival of, of, of magic and investigations kept it quiet. <laughs> you know why would you put, why would you subject yourself to this? You don't have to. They were all rich enough not to have to care, so they didn't. And the interesting thing too is that that these this way of thinking um, went underground. For, well, it was never went underground. It, it became the thing of occult, mysticism, uh, metaphysics, etc. And I think at the end of the day, the power of the thought was in the hands of the few. But I'm not, I'm not thinking for a moment that those that were controlling the masses, the few controlling the masses, didn't know that either and weren't, and weren't using that themselves. It was almost they like we've got something here and we're going to keep it from you. Here, look over there. There's the the magic. Well, it's the Roman circus, isn't it? Give them give them peanuts and lions and. Well, let me tell you something. Right, right now, right now, there is no problem with the supply chain of food and other products like toilet rolls in England. I don't know what Australia is like, but here we have people that our toilet paper is made here in this country. We have various manufacturers, Andrex and so on. And we've got loads of them, and they're all coming out and saying, what's this nightmare about? Because we've got tons of it, and we have plenty of lorries. They're delivering it to the shops. Why are you hoarding it? We're, making, we're working the same as we always do. We have a production line 24 hours a day. We've got tons of it. Same with food. The, food. the food chain is exactly the same. So let me ask you, what do you not want? If you want to lock people down because of a virus... What's the last thing you want people to understand? If you want to control people by means of the fear of this virus, what's the last thing you want people to do? Question whether or not we should be frightened of it at all. So what do you mm -hmm. do? You make them frightened of something else as well. Fear of not having enough food, not having enough toilet paper. And then the circuses, and I don't know in Australia if it's the same, but the circus over here is that every morning... Um, there are queues. We've had fights in supermarkets here, literally down the road from where I am, as people are going wild. And that now has become the topic of conversation. Oh, you people, you're just being selfish. You're already... They've taken the spotlight away from the reason that they're now using to keep us prisoners in our own homes. Is there a reason behind that? Do we need to put a tinfoil hat on, as the conspiracy theorist uh, deniers would say? I'm not, I'm not going to say that I am one or what isn't. What I will say is that being locked in my home wouldn't suit me. But I understand people who would like to know how easy it is to control an entire population should the need arise in the future. I'd like to, I'd like to point out that it would suit certain elements, i.e. ruling elements in society, to be able to have that society self-police so that they don't have to pass draconian laws that can come back to haunt them later on. They can just make suggestions, i.e., I'm using that word carefully, the word suggestion is a word that's used, used by hypnotists. We don't order people to do things, we suggest and then people go ahead and do it. Like your, like the magic thing, this one that I, mm -hmm. I did earlier on. I, I don't tell you, you know, fix your fingers together. I just suggest that and when you think of this, and, and sometimes I even make it a, a, a potentially not happen. I said, and you can even imagine now that those fingers are locked together. I, I just make a suggestion and people act upon it. 
And yes, of course they know. They will be collecting data like nobody's business on how quick and how easy it was to plant one small seed to get an entire society. And the one thing that's different about this one, more so than anything else that's happened in my lifetime, is that they've planted a seed that's global. This is not national. It's global. We're having the same reactions, the same thing happening. Um, I'm, you know, I don't care about conspiracy theory. And, and in fact, a lot of the things are no longer theories because you can actually see them taking, they've become phenomena, not theory. They're not just ideas. They are the phenomena that you can see. Um, so I'm not on about that, but I mean, the fact of it is this is now global. And if you're talking about manipulating the psyche of, a mass of people in many, many, many countries with the same idea, the same suggestion, and getting the same phenomena as results, i.e. panic buying, the, the cry for lockdown, the pointing the fingers at the deniers. If you want to see that on a global scale, now you've got the data to see how you can control the world. You can control the world by, by doing it. Yeah. All right, so thanks very much, Pete. We're going to stop it there and uh, we're going to save the best for last in the next podcast. Much more to come. Thanks again. It's a chapter that just keeps on giving, doesn't it? I mean, what, it was a really good chapter. There's all, so much to actually discuss. A wonderful chapter. Yeah, I can't wait for the, for the, the, last, the last little bit to, to, yeah. uh, to discuss. So thanks again and uh, we'll see you next week. And thanks so much for listening and we look forward to your company for the next instalment which will be part three.